from the mostly vermin-free studios of Rodale Institute and Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another infested episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. So what festive topic will we feature today? That's right, cats and kittens, it's rat control. Plus, exciting news for everyone who uses bulk compost on their farm or garden. And your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and decidedly deliberate denunciations. So keep your eyes and your ears right here, true believers, because the only problem you'll soon have is your kids watching that cartoon one who's a great chef on TV. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another exciting episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, the Christmas city. I am your host, Mike McGrath, coming up later in the show, how to get rid of rats in and around your property. So here it comes, cats and kittens. It's all about rat control. We better get right to your fascinating phone calls at 833-727-9588. Layton, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you very much. And um, uh, how you doing, Layton? I'm doing okay. I'll, I'll find out how I'm doing at the end of the call. Well, <laughs> we're going to let you tell me. Okay, very good. And where is Layton wondering about which plant he's killed lately? That's right. I'm in Swedesboro, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Very good. That's an old community, right? Yeah, it is. It's a lot of farmland. Uh, right across the street from me is about a 3,000-acre farm. And what do they do? Uh, what do they farm? Or is it just... Uh, yeah, currently asparagus and some corn. Okay. Do you, go, do you get it in season? I do, yeah. I was a member of their CSA and uh, get packages to the door, and it's, it's great to be part of the community. Oh, excellent. That sounds yeah. like a, a real deal. Yeah. All right. So what can we do you for, sir? Yeah. So, Mike, I've taken a lot of your advice. You've got me composting. You got me using raised beds. Um, but one thing I did when we moved here is I observed everything. The former owner, you know, three years ago when we moved here, the former owner's got a lot of plants, a lot of flowers, a lot of trees, and mm -hmm. I just let it be and observe. Um, but now I'm ready to make a, some changes to just a couple areas in front of the house, mm -hmm. which, is, which is adding some color and some bulbs. Sure. And, and next May, May 15th, hopefully if things are looking a little better, we hope to have a small outdoor uh, ceremony, wedding ceremony. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that some of these bulbs are blooming in mid-May. In mid-May. Um, so the bulbs... Yeah were are planted right when did yeah. when did they go into the ground they went a couple weeks maybe two weeks ago okay um a little bit late but you know yeah. not really terrible for your yeah. region you yeah. know i i try to get everything in by thanksgiving right um, right so all right so i'm thinking mid-may um so and i can tell you what February. i planted yeah, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sure. March, April, 
May. We're getting late into yeah. the spring bulb season. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm thinking that they're, depending on, uh, on the variety, uh, there would still be daffodils around. But I would okay. think it would be prime time for tulips. Okay. I've got you covered. I got you covered on both of those. I'm good there. Yes, and especially the fancier tulips, okay. not so much uh, the old original heirloom tulips, the quote okay. species type. Sure. Um, sure. But we're talking about the crazy ones, the parrot tulips and uh, double flowered and everything like that. Okay. And, I think I'm good there too. Yep. You know, most people when they um, when they even think of spring bulbs, the first thing that comes is tulips. Okay. Because I don't know if you got any crocus or glory of snow or uh, any of the minor bulbs, but they'll be gone by then. Okay, that's what I was thinking. I do have crocus, and you're right; they come up so early, they probably would be gone. Yeah, and in this case, if it is kind of quote offensive to the eyes. I, I would give you permission to cut off the leaves, even if they were still a little green a couple days before the ceremony. Okay. Of the, of the ones that are spent. Gotcha, gotcha. Just to clean it up, you mean? Yes. And okay. um, after tulips, um, I'm, the only thing I can think of that comes up later than that, and these, these persist into June, and that's the ornamental alliums, those giant firecracker balls. Beautiful. That's on my list, and I planted a whole bunch of those. And uh, did you do any fritillaria? No. Fritillaria are a spring bulb, uh, a very unusual flower structure. Uh, the flowers are like a bell. They kind of hang upside down like that. Okay, yeah. And one of the great things about them, and one of the things I'm honestly worried about with you, is you're across the street from a farm, Mm -hmm. In a rural community, um, mm -hmm. you must have deer, raccoons, and legions of evil squirrels. Yeah. But the good news is my dog is on a, a regular routine circling the house nonstop. Mm -hmm. Well, excellent. And what kind of dog? Yeah. Uh, Brittany Spaniel. Okay, good. Lots of hair. Yes. As you brush your dog... I want you to take the brushings okay. and use those to mulch your spring bulb beds. Okay. It is the perfect defense against evil squirrels, both digging up the bulbs and trying to eat the flowers. And same for deer. Um, dogs hate squirrels and deer. Deer and squirrels hate dogs. And this, the smell of the dog fur um, has been shown, at least overseas, at least in the Netherlands, uh, to keep uh, pests away, even voles. Great. Okay, yeah, she's been doing it. She digs them up every now, and I find them laying around, too. So Yeah, so, um, yeah, brush your dog regularly, and uh, especially um, if it's an outdoor dog a lot, in the spring, it's going to shed. Right. So get, right. get that uh, second coat off of it, and... Put all of that around where your bulbs are going to come up. Now, and, and, yeah, go ahead. I will also point out that um, if something goes wrong, you know, if it's a preternaturally warm spring mm -hmm. and, and most of your flowers are shot, you can cheat. 
Mm -hmm. And cheaters always win. Now, um, do you have a beer fridge? Do you have a secondary refrigerator in your house? Yeah, yeah. You do? Okay. And is it true to its name? Uh, Usually, yeah. Okay. If you want, and if you can find them, now, you might not find them in garden centers anymore. They're really... As the time we're speaking in mid-December, they're really promoting the giant inflatable Homer Simpson Santa Clauses. Yeah. But if they have any spring bulbs left over, you'll, you'll get them for pennies on a dollar. Uh-huh. And, okay. and the better spring bulb companies, you know, like Brent and Becky's bulbs, mm-hmm. um, you, there's always leftovers. So I would look around, and I would try to find some really nice-looking um, daffodils yeah. and tulips. How about iris? How about iris? Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, daffodils and tulips are the bulbs, in my experience, that take yeah. best to forcing. Sure. So okay. what, oh, you, for, what you would yeah. do is you'd get some attractive pots yeah. and uh, some nice organic soil-free mix, like you know, pro-mix or espoma potting soil, something like that. Nothing with chemical fertilizers or water-holding crystals. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, whatever bulbs you get, um, plant them very tightly together. If you've mm-hmm. got a 12-inch pot, I bet you can get 8 or 12 bulbs in there packed tight. Okay. And what you're going to do is you're going to plant them in the pots at the normal mm-hmm. depth you would outside, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to saturate the pots with water. Okay. And then you're going to put them into this fridge. Now, at this point, the fridge will not be allowed to have any kind of fruit or even vegetables in it. Mm-hmm. It's just the pots and bottles of beer and Coke and stuff like that. Okay. And let's see. Let me... 12 weeks after that, you can then remove the pots with the daffodils and take them out into the sun. You know, they're very cold hardy um, and allow them to grow. This is what we do for flower shows and stuff okay. like this. Um, if it seems a little early, don't worry. The 12 weeks is a minimum. Um, you can leave them in for much longer. Tulips need 16 weeks. So keep good records of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only will that be insurance, but it might be really cool to um, continue the display at a different eye level, maybe yeah. on porch railings and stuff sure. like that. You yeah. know, and it'll delude people into thinking you're really good at this. <laughs> yeah. And, and mulching, Mike, should I put the three inches of, of Arbor's wood chips down now? No, no, no. You don't want any wood chips anywhere near these things. Well, I'm talking about the bed, not the, um, not the forcing. No, no, neither. Neither. Okay. No, the bed, uh, the um, mulch you use should be an animal deterrent. So okay. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, you know, you've got a dog that sheds a lot. You might yep. have friends who have similar breeds. Um, get all the dog hair you can and, and yeah. put it out there. Don't, don't use arborist wood chips for a, a number of different reasons. Okay. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, very helpful. I'm feeling a little bit better, and I'm glad you've got me off with the, uh, the forcing. 
I never would have thought of that. Oh, yeah, and it's fun to do. Um, and I'll tell you, if, if you want to do different size pots, uh, the miniature daffodils, um, there is a variety called tet-a-tet, T-E-T-E, um, and that is possibly the easiest bulb to force. Okay. And they're beautiful. They're miniature daffs with like a two-colored cup. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I've always got your uh, podcast going in my headphones when I'm working around here, and uh, I've learned so much from you, and, and here's another one today. So thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Helen, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Where is Helen? I am calling from Pennsauken, New Jersey. I am having a problem with squash and harlequin bugs in my raised bed. And we've tried using neem oil, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to be getting them to go away. Okay, so um, you have harlequin bugs, which are a form of Uh stink bug. They're more common down south than they are in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. And do you mean squash beetles, the elongated creatures? Yeah, that's that's what they look like, kind of dark so that they almost blend in with the leaves, also look sort of like stink bugs. Um, I would say you probably just have a different form of stink bug then because oh, okay. uh, because squash bugs are um, kind of long and narrow, more shaped like a mm-hmm. lightning bug. So, okay, so you're growing in a raised bed. Mm-hmm. Okay. How big is the bed? It's about three by six. Oh, you okay. Okay, real yeah. nice and easy not to step in at three mm-hmm. feet wide, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. What did you fill it with? We filled it with organic garden soil um, that had some perlite mixed in. Okay. And then I mixed in a little bit of Dr. Earth's tomato and vegetable food into the bed as I was filling it with dirt. Okay. Okay. I've, I've, I've seen those products around, and they're natural and or organic, right? Okay. Just trying to keep it organic. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to try to help you do that. And what are you growing in the bed again besides the dreaded kohlrabi? <laughs> I've also got some tomatoes and some leeks. The leeks are doing pretty good. We had zucchini, but between the damage from the bugs and them trying to take over, I just cut them out. Okay. Yeah, stink bugs, they are a problem. There is a trap. Mm-hmm that you can Mm -hmm. buy, a stink bug trap, and it attracts them. Um, Did you have Mm -hmm. the stink bugs in your home over the winter? No, not that we noticed, but we also have a cat who likes to hunt things. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have two kittens, and one of them is a straight bug eater. I think you're on the right track with with the neem oil. Um, Now, you said that you've tried getting rid of them with sharp streams of water, right? Yes, we've tried hitting them with sharp streams of water. It's kind of fun because I like seeing them fall off and die. Yeah, but they're, I think they're too big to be as to negatively be. affected by that as aphids. That's the real cure oh, for aphids. Darn. So what I'm going to suggest is a two-pronged approach. Um, mm-hmm. Look for the stink bug trap. My understanding mm-hmm. is you need to hang it right in the plant, right on the plant. And then the stink bugs are attracted to it and crawl into it and die. I think it is made by a company called Rescue. They are the premier makers of insect traps. In Mm -hmm. addition to that, I'm gonna suggest 
um, you spray them directly with either uh, insecticidal soap or mm-hmm. horticultural oil. And I'll tell you a deep, dark secret. I probably shouldn't keep saying this because friends of mine <laughs> sell the pre-made stuff, but mm-hmm. I have found nonstick cooking spray to be a great alternative. It is what I use when I have to approach a yellow jacket nest or on the rare occasion that I have a pest out there. Yeah, it, 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 will, it will coat them. You know, you pam them to death, so to speak. You coat them with oil and insects yeah. breathe through their exoskeleton and when they're covered with oil, they can't breathe and they die. And of course, okay. all you're doing is, is spraying a little canola oil or olive oil around so you're mm-hmm. not harming anything. So yeah. hopefully that and the traps um, should help you out. Oh, great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, good luck to you. Sorry to hear about your thank troubles. Thank you very much. Hey, but now I know how to fix them. So thank you so much for your help. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and... and... Confess that the emails you have theoretically been sending to our show have not gotten through to us for the, oh, let's say only uh, maybe the past two months or so. Many kind people did try to email us to say that their emails were bouncing back, but, well, let's just say it was a nice gesture on their part. But don't go testing to see if we got it fixed just yet, because we'll be right back to get rid of your rats and take more of your fabulous phone calls. Somehow. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another festive episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Coming up later in the show, how to get rid of rats in and around your property. In the meantime, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Steve, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello, I'm calling from Wethersfield, Connecticut, just south of Hartford. Oh, okay, very good. Uh, what can we do for Steve in CT? I have a very strange happening with my lilac bushes this year. Okay. All the other um, bushes in the area, including the star magnolia, which usually is the last to drop its leaves, mm-hmm. held onto its leaves, and they were solidly green all the way through until we had a major windstorm, which knocked them all off. Right. Any guess why? They were the last ones to drop their leaves, and they didn't even change color. Um, I think pretty much the same thing happened to me. I heard, I've, I've heard reports um, about this from numerous locations, and 
you know, I'm kind of a bad parent. If the state ever came, they would take half my plants away and put them into foster care. Uh, but I did notice that the leaves of my lilac were still really green late in the season. Yep. And of course, I was trying to remember, is this normal? Is this different? We had, based on a number of different instances that people have told me about, um, an unusually warm winter. Um, you know, for instance, you and I are speaking, you know, we're taping a whole bunch of shows for after the new year. We're speaking in the middle of December. There's three inches of snow on the ground outside right now, and that already beats last year's record, which I think was like 0.6 of an inch. So we had a very mild winter, and the plants are kind of reacting to that. The good part is the longer leaves are green on something like a woody perennial, like a lilac, um, the more photosynthesis they can achieve. Now, you know, once you get way past like Thanksgiving or something, you know, the sun isn't out long enough, it's at the wrong angle. Um, but green leaves, the longer they're up, the more potential they have to store energy. So not only do I not think anything's going to be wrong, it's quite possible, especially with a plant like a lilac, that next spring we may see one of the most spectacular displays we've ever seen. Um, because I've noticed over the years with mine, um, sun is what lilacs need to produce flowers. Mine, they typically don't produce flowers for the first five, six, seven years in the ground. They're very slow, but they're long-lived plants. And once they start producing, um, they should do very well. Well, I really never noticed that I was only getting flowers at the top of the plant because that was the only part of the plant that was getting sun. So now all that sunlight has been stored up for next year. And, yep. and it, it's like you got the bonus tank on the motorcycle. You know, you've got, you've got extra fuel there. And I can't think it's going to be anything other than good. Because as you know, on plants like lilac, forsythia, rhododendrons, azaleas, flowering cherries, all those buds are already set. So what you'll get in the spring is the direct result of how the plant did this year. You know, you get these cold and clammy summers and there's a lot of cloud cover. Well, you know, that's probably going to affect the flowering the next year negatively. Um, sure. but, but this has the potential um, to really kick some horticultural butt. So I'm not going to get a call from the ASPCP. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And um, I'd like to know if I'm right. So um, if you don't mind, and, and do you generally get a good flowering display from your lilac? It's been mixed. I've got three different plants, so I'll be able to see the difference. And did they all hold their leaves? They did. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think this is still the hangover, so to speak, from that warm winter. I, I think we had a very good summer uh, for plant growth. And so uh, do me a favor. If you get a spectacular result 
um, please take a couple of pictures and send them to us. Um, yep. If that doesn't happen, forget we had this conversation. <laughs> I have a, a, diff a second question, if you want. You spoke once before about um, how corn grows. Yes. Um, when I was growing up, I had a totally different vision as to how it was, and you certainly enlightened me for a whole new way that it worked. Right. I was under the impression that the little seeds at the top dropped down into the leaves, and that's what caused the corn to grow there. I mean, I was a preteen at the time. Right. So observing nature. The pollen head at the top of every corn stalk is just that. It's not true seeds. It is right. pollen. Um, and the way it works, which I find fascinating, is the pollen heads start to drop their pollen just as the corn is silking. That is just as what will become the ears are starting to appear at different crotch levels on the plant. And I could be mistaken, but it is my understanding that every pollen grain that lands in the silks of that developing ear becomes a kernel of corn, and the kernel of corn once dried, that becomes the seed um, for more corn. Right, and every strand of um, silk, I believe, goes to a kernel location. Yes, yeah, there's nothing yeah, wasted like there. And, highway there. Yeah, and if you don't have a lot of corn, the old line from Johnny's Selected Seeds was if you're going to grow sweet corn, you want at least a block of, 20, of 36, so the pollen gets evenly distributed. But you can also cheat, and again, kids, remember rule number one, cheaters always win, and you can actually stroke the pollen out of those, uh, those pollen heads and get it down more into the developing silks and fill out the ears better than would have occurred if you had just relied on the wind. I understand that out in corn country, they clip the tassels off. Why would they do that? Um, I can't imagine, and it sure seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. But I've heard about it. Um, I have to look it up and find out more about it. Yeah, that's um, not to the best of my knowledge. And it appears to be added work, which I'm allergic to. Yeah. All right, Steve. Good luck to you, sir. Very good. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Britt, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Britt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm just ducky. Thanks for asking. Yeah, ducky <laughs> hasn't had a lot of... Oh, and now his mask is falling off. Dr. Oh, Fauci, no. I know, Dr. Fauci would never approve. You know, there you go, ducky. <laughs> now you're federally clean again. Ducky <laughs> is one of the first. He's going to get the vaccine because he's an essential uh, part of the show, more than I am mm -hmm. anyway. He's not afraid of needles? No, 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 no. Um, and uh, where are you, Britt? Grand Rapids, Michigan. Excellent. I don't think, I'm not sure we ever had a call from Grand Rapids. That's very exciting, mm -hmm. you know. Pleased to be the first. Yeah, yeah. Michigan, you had such a smooth election. No, no controversy of any kind. None. It was so perfectly easy. Yeah, just like Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> okay, so what can we do you for, Britt? Well, I got one of my favorite things to get in the mail in the winter just last week. I got 
a seed catalog. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I was looking through, and I noticed um, one of the plants that I had gotten last year was a Minnesota midget melon. <laughs> I'm from Minnesota, so I had to get some and grow some. Yeah. And they turned out great. Softball-sized melons, kind of like a cantaloupe. Okay, good, good. Now, and when you say kind of like a cantaloupe, um, do you need? Do you mean a netted melon that you know kind of has the appearance of netting for its rind? Yes, with okay. the orange flesh and that yummy sweet scent when you cut it open. Yes, oh, so exactly. Good. So um, just. To be correct, um, first, there is no such thing as a yam at Thanksgiving and Christmas time. Nobody mm-hmm. in America has ever eaten a yam. They're all sweet potatoes. And your cantaloupes are um, part of a misnaming that occurred maybe a hundred years ago. Uh, a true cantaloupe, believe it or not, is even more um, florid than what you grew. It's considered to be the ambrosia. Um, But when it's a netted melon, they're called musk melons. And that's for the, um, that's for the fragrance. But of course, if you ask somebody for a musk melon, they'll look at you like you're nuts. So just keep calling it a cantaloupe. Okay, so you did good growing, uh, growing miniature musk melons. Yep, and I was looking at the listing for it because I'm going to have them again. Mm-hmm. And I noticed at the bottom it said resistant to fusarium wilt. Yes. So I was thinking part of why I'm building a second raised bed this coming spring is so that I have somewhere to rotate my tomatoes to. Gotcha. Am I shooting myself in the foot by growing these melons in the bed that the tomatoes are currently evicted from. No, not uh, at all. Not at okay. all. There are two basic soil-borne wilts, W-I-L-T-S, um, in the United States. Up where you are in the frozen north, it is verticillium. It is not fusarium. Um, verticillium persists throughout the north down even past me, starting to get into almost the Washington, D.C. area. After that, it changes over, and fusarium wilt becomes more dominant. Um, So it really doesn't apply to you. Okay. There may be some crossover protection, um, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm not familiar with melons being that... um, susceptible to soil-borne wilts. But anything that it says it's naturally resistant is a bonus. It it can't be negative. And is it the same catalog, same company you bought the seeds from last year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you should do fine. Now, did you do anything special to make sure you got mature melons? Um, I did have them growing up. I'm getting a trellis for next year, but this last year I used some old tomato cages to support them up off the ground. And then when the melons started getting to any kind of decent size, I had uh, some old onion bags that I used to make nets for them and support them. Perfect, perfect. Now, uh, what I will mention, because you know you you have a short growing season, Mm -hmm. Um, as we're approaching the time that you're thinking about planting them, remove any mulch 
from the bed. Um, if you've got shredded leaves or straw or anything like that, just hoe it off to the side. This will allow the soil to warm up much better than if the mulch were to remain in place. And then if you want to try a cool trick, get some black plastic, lay it down over top of the bed. This is after the soil warms up for a week or two. Put down black plastic and you're starting your own seeds indoors and then moving the plants out? Yes. Okay, so where you want to plant the melons, cut slits into the black plastic and then insert the plant through that slit at the right height that you would no matter what. The black plastic will absorb heat during the day and keep the soil warmer. And this okay. can result in you getting more melons, earlier melons. They might even have a bit more of a better flavor because they're, you know, they're typically tropical plants. And no offense, okay. nobody has ever called Michigan tropical. No, that's part of why I moved here, because snow is good for you. Yeah, yeah, we're going to find out <laughs> how good. <laughs> but basically, that's it. And that's a trick that, for instance, you would only use for melons, because mm -hmm. they are the most heat-hungry um, plants we grow in the summertime garden. People in my region in Pennsylvania will do this. And okay. it's the only thing that I recommend black plastic for, but I think you'll be... Um, very pleased with the early season results. You know, sometimes um, early in the season, the plants just sit there. But if, mm -hmm. we, if we warm up the soil and then keep it warm, they're, they're gonna go, they're gonna move for you. Excellent. Okay, and I like, uh, what, Wisconsin mini melon? Mich uh, Minnesota midget melons. They were created by the University of Minnesota, apparently. Anytime you see something like that that was developed at an agricultural university near where you live, um, y you can go to the bank on that. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. All right, and good luck, and thank you for the tip. Um, I'll recommend that to people who want to grow melons in cold climes. And it's great. They're single-serving size. They're about the size of a softball. So That's the kind of uh, little baby watermelons I like to grow. Mm-hmm. And same thing, by the way, uh, watermelon is a melon. So if you wanted to try one of these little icebox melons, you would do the warm up the soil and then the black plastic trick. Sounds good. I did get, a friend of mine gave me some watermelon seeds for next year. So I'll see if that works too. All right. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You take care. Well, it's time for me to take another little break and and confess that the fabulous phone call messages you theoretically have been sending us have also gotten bollocked up. So if you haven't heard anything back, please try again, because hey, your call is important to us, and I mean that sincerely. But don't go sending telecommunicated messages into the Twilight Zone just yet, because we'll be right back to take care of your rats and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA.
Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodeo Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, which is the Christmas city. If you don't believe me, there's a star up on the mountain. Go look for it. Hey, but we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the most festive question of the week in 23 years of You Bet Your Garden. How to get rid of rats in and around your house. In the meantime, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Thea, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. How are you today? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. Ducky always likes to get into the show here. Um, how are you, Thea? I'm doing great. Thank you. And where is Thea doing great? In Santa Rosa, California. How impacted have you guys been by these relentless fires over the past couple of years? Very, very impacted. Um, it's, uh, it's been brutal. There's the last couple of years. This year in particular, we had two big wildfires, um, and they, they got close. Well, one of them this year got very close, within a mile of our house, and we had to evacuate. And even, well, I'm glad you're okay, but even if the vineyard doesn't go up in flames, What's been happening over the past couple of years is they've had to destroy the grapes because they get all smoky. Yep, yep. They get smoke taint, and it comes through in the wine, and it's just not drinkable. Oh, man, what a sin. Well, um, I, hope the, I hope the trend reverses. <laughs> what, can we, uh, what can we do for you today? Well, um, speaking of fires, we are just with as many fires as we've been getting, um, I've become really worried with the impact of the ashfall and the smoke and the environmental impact of the smoke and the ash on the garden, mm -hmm. you know, the edibles and the ornamentals. Um, this year, the fires started so early, it was August. Um, and just as we were in you know, hitting the ground running. We were harvesting our tomatoes and right. our peppers and all of that. And, um, yeah, I'm concerned. I don't know what to do. I don't, I, I mean, I can wash the vegetables, of course, right. and the leafy greens, but I don't know what the long-term impact is, and I don't know how to support my garden right. under those conditions. I can only imagine, and the fact that I can only imagine is one reason I live in Pennsylvania and not California, because you would certainly be my first choice otherwise. This is not volcanic ash. If it were volcanic ash, that would be a different conversation, um, because there are noxious gases and noxious elements, toxic elements that come um, out of the volcano. Um, but what you're talking about is, I, I would call it hardwood ash, except with most of your uh, trees, it's going to be conifers, right? It's, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. So what, I don't think there is any direct harm from the ash landing on your garden in terms of uptake of nasty materials, but your soils are already tend to the alkaline side where you are because of the lack of rain. You know, you get a mm. lot of rain, you tend to have acidic soil. If you live in a dry region, it tends to be alkaline. So I would say, even though we obviously have this ash all around and it's very worrisome, I would say the issue for me would be the pH. If it were already tending alkaline, 
and then it got dusted with any kind of wood ash, um, it could become more alkaline. So if you started to see plant distress, I don't think it would be the ash directly, but the chemical reaction of it further increasing the alkalinity of your soil. So, I mean, this is something that you could treat with peat moss or elevate, uh, elevated, uh, elemental sulfur if you get a soil test done and it comes up, you know, over seven because you want to bring it back down to around 6.5, just slightly acidic. But, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised with this amount of ash and give the ash a year or two to really biodegrade into the soil. You, you might wind up at eight or something like that mm. and, and really have to remediate it. But uh, there are nutritious elements in hardwood ash, for instance, where, where I live and on the East Coast where there's a lot of rain, uh, we urge people not to, quote, lime their lawns, but to seek out somebody with a wood stove and use the wood ash to raise um, the pH up to a healthy level because a wood ash, as opposed to lime, has all these wonderful micronutrients in there. And any ash that hits your garden in August, there, it's not going to be absorbed by your plants whatsoever. Uh, the ash is fairly inert. It takes time for soil microbes to break it down and really incorporate it into your soil. Um, and, you know, there's always the possibility of, of a, a little bit of bad material got into the fire. But I would say overwhelmingly, as you know, this is a natural process out west. Mm -hmm. And in over time, it actually can remediate the soil and make the soil more hospitable to pioneer plants that emerge after, um, after the fires. So I would say the ash itself being physically present is a dodge, but I would urge you to keep an eye on your pH because it can take some time um, to get that pH back down if it's very alkaline and you would want to get ahead of the curve as opposed to, you know, seeing your plants suffer. Okay. All okay. Right. That makes sense. Yes. Yes. That's great news. Thank you. Yeah. Um, a lot of these things, it's not so much the plants absorbing anything. It, it's really the physical change in the soil. Okay. Because we did definitely have some sort of concern of, you know, are the plants really safe to eat even if we wash them? Yes, um, yes, what, absolutely. You know. Absolutely. I mean, I would, I would have no qualms about it whatsoever. Um, one of the favorite remedies, for instance, for flea beetles, which can be tenacious pests of eggplant and uh, kale and some other greens, um, older Italian gardeners would dust the plants with wood ash because um, it would deter uh, the pest and uh, kind of spark up the plant at the same time. Well, that's really reassuring. I was I was for sure concerned, and then I was worried long-term what the damage is. So it sounds like I just need to keep an eye on the um, alkalinity, and then we should be in good shape. Yeah, you want to have a good, healthy soil. You know, earthworms, for instance, can't help you out above a mm -hmm. certain pH, and certain nutrients become unavailable to plants uh, when the pH is too high. Okay, great. Thank you.
All right, as promised, it's time for a highly festive question of the week. What to do about dirty rats? Pat in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, which is in the greater Washington, D.C. area, writes, can you please tell me what you would consider the most effective and safe household rat poison? I saw a product online, but it was restricted, quote, for use in and around agricultural buildings only. Thanks. Well, thank you, Pat. I often forget that many people don't realize how dangerous some of these over-the-counter products can be. After all, you buy it off the shelf, and then it's practical to assume that there's no need to read the warnings or directions because you bought it off the shelf. It's so obviously safe. Here's the deal with all these things. If you go into a big box store and say you have weed problems, they'll almost certainly try and sell you a chemical herbicide like Roundup, whose parent company, Monsanto, is currently paying out hundreds of millions of dollars in claims to people who use that product and then develop specific types of cancers. If you say you have insect problems, they'll likely try and sell you a chemical herbicide like Seven, which is spelled S-E-V-I-N, which will make problems worse by killing all the beneficial life in your garden and maybe shortening your life as well, as will actually shortening, but that's a tale for another time. If, however, you complain about mouse problems, you just might be offered old-fashioned snap traps, which are highly effective. You might even be offered the relatively new electronic mouse traps that use bait to lure mice inside a small box that electrocutes them. These devices also contain a light that comes on to signal a catch, allowing you to open a door and drop the former mouse into the trash without touching it. Ah, but if you say you have rat problems, it's dollars to donuts, they'll say rat poison. We'll get to the non-toxic alternatives in a moment, but first, why you should just say no to rat poison. Rats are very suspicious of new food sources, perhaps unlike cats because they lack the ability to regurgitate. And so much of the poison is ignored, leading to its possible consumption by cats, dogs, children, and raptors like hawks and owls. Now, raptors like hawks and owls and foxes are prime consumers of rats. So if you kill even one of these beneficial creatures, your vermin problems will probably increase greatly. In farm settings, even worse, the poison is often just scattered on the ground, leading to the potential poisonings just described. In addition, rain will then wash the poison into the groundwater, where it can now wreak havoc on frogs, toads, salamanders, and you, if you're using well water. But the number one reason not to use poison is rats in the walls. Yes, the telltale scratching sound of a rat running around in your walls is enough to give anybody the willies. But rat poisons are slow-acting, allowing the poisoned creature time to maybe escape outside the house, where the carcass will almost certainly be eaten by a raptor or household pet. But much worse is when the rat heads back to its nest inside your walls. The stench of the slowly decaying animal is, to put it mildly, unbearable. So, what are your intelligent options? I'm so glad you asked. Snap traps that are labeled for rats, which are essentially large mouse traps on steroids, are big enough to do the job. Bait them with peanut butter and be careful setting the trap, as the snap would be painful if you set it off on yourself. 
then position it where you have seen ratty activity. If it snaps but you got no rat, nail that trap to a decent sized piece of wood and repeat. The added stability of the wood will help prevent another failure. Now, rats are very intelligent. If they avoid your traps, wash the traps well or start with new ones that won't have your scent on it. Wear gloves when you position them, add some bait, but don't set the traps. You want to allow the vermin to come and go eating the bait without danger. And then when you know they're, quote, taking the bait, set the traps. Now, I realize many people are squeamish about dispatching the dead vermin. If that's the case, recruit a helper or wear gloves or plastic bags over your hands or, or just use a couple of plastic bags to dispatch the rat, trap and all. Hey, they don't cost that much. Electronic mouse traps come in a larger size to catch rats as well. I think it's called the rat zapper. No muss, no fuss, no touching. In addition, have a heart and similar live catch traps can be highly effective. The creature goes inside and triggers the mechanism that drops the door without harming it. If it's a bird, a kitty cat, or other non-offensive creature, you can release it. If it is a rat, my advice is to drop the entire device into deep water and come back 15 minutes later. However, if it's a possum, release it. They eat rats. Whatever you do, never release rats or mice back into the wild. These creatures are disease-carrying, age-old enemies of humans, and they would love to have another opportunity to harm you. And finally, I have to give a shout-out to a website called automatictrap.com. I found them while I was researching this piece, and their informative sections are first class. And they market a device that looks like something Wiley Coyote would buy from the Acme Roadrunner Destruction Company. It lures in rats and then beans them for good with a pressurized CO2 rat thumper. No beep beep. Beep beep. Well, that sure was some festive holiday information about getting rid of your ratus ratus, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read that information over at your leisure or your leisure. And that includes the link to that excellent information about the new Wiley Coyote Roadrunner, uh, uh, no, er, rat trap. And by the way, I realize now that it's meep meep and not beep beep. Meep meep. Because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Hey, kids, don't try this at home. This man is a trained professional. Yikes, my producer is threatening to wrangle my rats if I don't get out of this studio. You know, that wouldn't be too bad. But we must be out of time. But you can still call us anytime at 833-727-9588. Hopefully we've got the phones fixed. Or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Maybe. Please, please include your location. You'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to many of your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. 
You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when a strange meteor fell from the sky near the Colonial Theater, and he got to it before Steve McQueen. Like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Hey, come on. I want to see if I can find it. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. Ken Tweeter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airwaves is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer, as always, is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Kavia Minnick. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director of direction is Javier Diaz. Eric Werner is running the camera today. Zach the Tack is in the house, and the rest of the crew includes the usual gang of idiots, including me. Our beloved CEO, Tim Fallon, isn't just late for meetings, cats and kittens. He just called to wish you all a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. A couple weeks from now, I figure he might get around to Christmas. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, saying stay safe. Wear a mask, distance yourself socially, and try to still have fun this holiday season because we need each and every one of you to take Dr. Fauci's advice so we can see you again next year. the holidays are over and the crew and I are just waking up from our long winter's naps. So we have no idea what we're going to do next week. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and all I can say is that we'll have fun, I'll get into trouble, and I'll probably still be writing 2020 on my checks. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden.